at the text as we've been going through First uh, Corinthians. Yeah, if you've not been with us um, off and on for a few months, and today we'll do so before we come to the Lord's table. At the end of the uh, service, we will, as you exit, there'll be ushers there to receive what we call a deacon's fund offering. Uh, let me tell you something I just found out a couple of weeks ago that I hope you'll you'll be encouraged by, but. Uh, we never give financial reports from up here, and I almost never mention church budget or money or needs from this pulpit, but uh, our annual budget is <clears throat> about $2.2 million. And out included in that is uh, several hundred thousand for benevolences, like local benevolences, like the Salvation Army and the Macon Rescue Mission and, and others, and Strong Tower Fellowship, and and then church planting in other places in, in uh, North America, uh, among other things. We also give separately for foreign missions, uh, those missions outside of the United States through our faith promise giving, which is between two hundred and $300,000 a year. But I found out an encouraging um, ballpark figure that I hope will encourage you that, that even though we have a $2.2 million annual budget, uh, we essentially, you, the congregation, through our church, gives away about $1.1 million a year. And that is a, a uh, I hope that's encouraging to you like it is to me. Uh, I think it's an indication that hopefully we take seriously that to whom much is given, much is required. Uh, but, but the church gives out uh, to, to needs all over the world. Uh, either through our budget or through some of you individually that give it through the church to approve things, uh, ministries that have been approved by the session. Uh, so at the end of the service, when we have communion, which is uh, we try to have it the first Sunday of each month, then as you exit, there'll be ushers to receive an offering. That is the only offering, the only fund we use for our own church members that have particular needs, maybe emergency needs, things like that, and we have a handful of deacons that very discreetly and confidentially administer that fund. So if you know of needs that someone's not telling others, you could speak to one of the deacons and uh, to just let make them aware of that. Uh, okay, has nothing to do with 1 Corinthians 6, but uh, let's look now as we uh, looked at chapter 5 two weeks ago. Just a couple of words of uh, review. The Apostle Paul planted this church in Corinth. He stayed there 18 months, saw it get established, and he has moved on now. He's been gone. He's in the city of Ephesus. And he's writing back to them in response to some questions that have been brought to him. There's some issues in the church of division, among many other things, and there are questions about church issues. Uh, so beginning in chapter 5, he begins to move into some of these problematic issues in the church. In chapter 5, there's a man who's committing flagrant immorality of an incestual nature, and the church is doing nothing about it. They're, in fact, uh, proud of it. You know, look how inclusive we are. Look how open we are to anyone. And Paul is saying it should not be that way, and he says, put the man out if he's not repentant. And now we come to chapter 6, and he's going to deal with the fact that they're suing each other. Lawsuits. Uh, so, follow with me as I read verses 1 through 11, please. When one of you has agreements against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we pray now that you would nourish our, our souls with your word. You tell us we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We pray you give us great understanding in this area that affects us all of grievances against one another. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to try to imagine living in a day and a time and a place where lawsuits happen all the time, where it's just a, a part of ordinary life. And you live with the awareness that on any given day, you might be involved in some sort of accident that may be your fault, may not be your fault, uh, or some kind of action you're involved in, and you could be taken to court by another person. Um, and imagine living in a time when uh, suits are not necessarily for the purpose of seeking justice, but they're for seeking to benefit financially, those who bring the suit. Now, does that sound familiar? If it does, you know I'm describing the ancient city of Corinth. Okay? To understand this passage, we need to know something about how the Greek world uh, viewed litigation at this time, during New Testament times. Now, there was a division in the church because people were coming to Christ. They were coming from Gentile backgrounds. They were coming from Jewish backgrounds. And they were all filtering into this church in Corinth, this metropolitan church in a metropolitan city. Now, the Jews did not ordinarily use the civil law courts at all. They settled things before the grievances they had. They would try and settle before the elders of their village or of their synagogue. And to them, justice was far more thing to be settled with a family attitude, within the family. We're keeping this within the family. We're not taking this to people who are Gentiles to try to give us a, a verdict. But not so with the Greeks. They were characteristically a very litigious people. In the children's education, from the time they were young, they were taught logic, they were taught rhetoric in order to win arguments. And so going to court became almost a form of entertainment. Corinth, the city of Corinth, would have been like, the, at the same time, the city of Athens. And we know that in Athens, if there was a dispute between two parties, the first attempt to settle was through a private arbitrator. But in the event that that did not help, then there was a court known as the Forty. 
So you would argue, or your case would be argued before these 40 jurors. And then it went to appeal to a, a court that had 201 jurors, then one of 401, and the ultimate juries were composed of 6,000 people that would hear the cases. People would line up like they do at some places in Macon for a day job. They would line up to serve on a jury and they would be paid for their services. Now, with that love of being litigious and their love for going to the law, these Greeks bring into the church their perspective. And Paul is shocked. And so he's writing because within the church, they're not talking about outsiders, not entities outside, but within the church, you had Christian brother going against Christian brother, hauling them into court with lawsuits. So let me answer the big questions that may have already be arising in your mind about this passage. Is this passage saying it's always wrong under any circumstances to sue someone? No, it is not saying that. Are civil courts wrong to have? No, it's not saying that either. We know that the Apostle Paul himself used the civil courts when he appealed his case to Caesar, when he was uh, when his freedom was taken away for the fact that he was preaching the gospel. Third question, should all complaints between believers always be handled only within the church? No. Sometimes it's just not possible. Sometimes they're too technical. Or they involve things that go far beyond the realm of those in the church. So let's look briefly at some of the highlights of the passage as we um, then prepare to come to the Lord's table. Verse 1, Paul assumes grievances will happen. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? He isn't rebuking them so much for having grievances. That's just life. That's life in the church. That we, will, we are to bear with one another, as it says in Colossians 3. There will be tension. And it's, it's sad in the American church, but I, it only continues to be true. Often people typically leave one church and go to another uh, often, not always, I'm not trying to impute anyone, but often it's over unresolved conflict. And, and they're at odds with another person, and they say, well, look, just I'm going to keep it peaceful, I'm just leaving, and I'll, I'll go somewhere else. And the conflict, the problem is, is never resolved. By the way, uh, you should know this, uh, and it was suggested to me after the first service, if you look in the Presbyterian Church of America Book of Church Order, in the appendix is a whole section on biblical peacemaking, the whole process, and an approach to making peace when there are grievances with one another. If you don't have a copy of our Book of Church Order, you go to pcanet.org, and it's all there. Okay, back to the text. Why is Paul saying that suing a fellow believer uh, is not a good idea, that, that it's wrong? Well, his first reason is that we in the church, the local church, have unique resources. We have resources the world doesn't have. Now, first, in verses 2 and 3, he alludes to something that's somewhat mysterious, and we don't know a lot about it from Scripture, when he says, Do you not know that the saints, the word there is not meaning a super-Christian, it just means all believers, those who've been set apart. You're a saint if you're in Christ. I'm a saint in Christ. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are, not, are you not competent to try trivial cases? And then he says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? 
So we have resources in the church that God has given to us that he's saying there's no need to go to a court when you've got these resources. And one of those is the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom, and he makes us competent. In verse 2, when he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? The answer is no. He's saying you are competent. You're competent to be able to make peace among yourselves. He's reassuring them that they can do that. And it's amazing. Some of us were converted as children, some of us as teenagers or as adults. And I've seen it numerous times where a person is radically converted. In other words, they move from darkness to life very quickly. From one, one on Tuesday, they're an unbeliever. On Wednesday, the person's a Christian. And already there's a wisdom that comes out of them that can only be explained by the Holy Spirit. Now they have a resource they did not have. And there's a sensitivity to things. There's a conscious about things. There's an awareness that wasn't there before. And many of us say, you know what I'm talking about. And Paul's saying, you've got this resource in the church. And you're able, you're able to settle disputes when they come up. There is a place for experts. Please don't hear me saying, I think, that, that specialists and experts in law or counseling uh, or professionals are not needed. No, they're needed. But we're in a day when it's just like a knee-jerk reaction when someone says, look, I, I've got this ongoing problem with another person. Do you mind if I talk to you about it? That our knee-jerk reaction is, well, you need to see a counselor or you need to go see this professional, or you need to see this expert in this area, rather than just listening and, and, and being empathetic. I sat with a man within the past few weeks, and I've not seen him in two years. He's not in this church, and, but, but he lives in middle Georgia, and I, I, I used to see him often, and I hadn't seen him. I didn't know what, and I get a text out of the blue, and he, he, I said, where have you been? And, and he said, I, I've been in the bed with an illness for a year. So we, we meet the other day in, in the Holy of Holies, the uh, Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> and uh, Barbara, you didn't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I want to hear your story. I didn't say anything for about 45 minutes. And I listened to where a guy's lost his health, lost his faith, went bankrupt, and many lives have been affected. Thankfully, his marriage hadn't fallen apart. And at the end, I mean, I, I'm, just, I'm just listening. And, and uh, he, he started going back to church. And he told me, uh, he, he said, I, I went bankrupt in every way you can go bankrupt. Help, spiritually, everything. I was angry at God. And finally, he said at the end, you got any words of wisdom? Now, there was something inside of me that wanted to say, what can I add to that? You know, I mean, you, you know, you go talk here. Here's a card for this counseling center down the street. Go talk to But I said, yeah, I've got some words of wisdom. And, and I talked to him about, here's how you can grow in Christ, and here's what I want to urge you to do. Do whatever replenishes your soul, and whatever your learning style is, whether that's listening or reading with the Scriptures daily and, and doing this. But it's like something inside of us wants to shift and say, we're in a day of experts. I, can, I can't help. But we can move by faith. We can move out saying, God, you can use this. Now, we should feel more confidence than we do. Often what's needed is a listening ear and a word of encouragement. Just listen to this person's grievance. 
And then listen to the other person's grievance and, and a word of encouragement that this is not as complicated as you think it is or this is not as uh, a much of a lost cause as you think it is. The late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia said this about this passage, okay? Hey, mark, mark it down. This is the first quotation about the Bible from a Supreme Court justice from this pulpit since I've been the pastor. He said this, these words about 1 Corinthians 6. I think that this passage of Scripture has something to say about the proper Christian attitude towards civil litigation. Paul is making two points. Paul says that the mediation of a mutual friend, such as the parish priest, he was Catholic, should be sought before parties run off to the law courts. I think we are too ready today to see vindication or vengeance through adversary proceedings rather than peace through mediation. Good Christians, Justice Scalia said, just, are, just as they are slow to anger should be slow to sue. Now there is a place to turn things over to the law, don't get me wrong. If something's illegal, if there's a form of sexual abuse or, or theft or embezzlement, not at all saying that. I think he was talking about run-of-the-mill grievances within the church, not hiding illegal behavior. One night I received a phone call from a college student when I was doing college ministry, and she was in a panic, said, my mother has the pills. She called me. She's getting ready to empty the whole container in her mouth. She's going to kill herself. What do I do? I said, hang on. Somebody's going to call you in just a minute. What did I do? I called a professional at that point, a counseling friend of mine, and I said, this is the situation. He said, okay, tell her first, call the police, because what her mom's doing is illegal. And then he got involved. Thankfully, the woman is okay or was okay, and, and she began seeing this, this professional. But he was saying, you're dealing with a legal matter here too, an issue of the law, and that's what should be called in. Is there no one among you, Paul asked, wise enough to settle a dispute? Whatever personal relationships have been strained within the body of Christ, it's important to use especially gifted people within the body that can bring God's wisdom into the situation. And as I just mentioned, the best catalysts for healing fractured relationships are usually those with listening hearts and the patience to hear both sides out to the end and to be very objective about it. And then Paul in verse 7 says, you're dishonoring Christ's church. He said, you're already defeated when you bring these, these lawsuits. He's not talking about whether the court sides in their favor. He's saying you're losing in the eyes of the world. You're bringing dishonor on the body of Christ. Are you not willing, he goes on to say, to be defrauded and, and wronged? This is where it's going to get very tough. Now, I know what you're going to think, and that is, I think I know what you're going to think. This is not practical. Chip, I thought the Bible was supposed to be practical. This is not practical. When he says, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You know what he's saying here? that if I'm wrong by another believer, if you're wrong by another person, there is a time and a place to say, I'm not going to defend myself. I'm going to let God be the judge here. And our wiring today, I don't know about you, but mine, and I think what we hear is, I'm not taking a loss. I'll never lose, and I certainly won't lose money. And if there's money involved, it's like you know, any, all right, scorched earth. 
I'm going to get it back. I'm going to do whatever's necessary. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. And Paul is saying there's a time to be defrauded and to be wronged. Why? Because when you get into a suit, your sanctification is going to be tested maybe like never before because it's hard not to be vindictive. It's hard not to be adversarial. John Calvin, who believed highly in the civil courts, wrote, Let us therefore remember that Paul does not disapprove of lawsuits on the ground that it is wrong in itself to uphold a good case by having recourse to the magistrate, to the judge. But because they are nearly always bound up with improper attitudes of mind, such as lack of self-control, desire for revenge, hostility, obstinacy, and so on. I've watched some of you through the years uh, that have been sued and, and, and watched year one, year two, year three, and I've watched the life just get sucked in many cases, it was beyond your control. But it, it, it's, it's, he's talking here about sanctification and growing in Christ. I had a woman, a, a friend of our family years ago, said that her son was at a major state university in another state, and I think it was at a football game or something. There, there was a, some students did something to get arrested, and she, he was included in the arrest, but she said he had nothing to do with it. And they felt the university had defamed their son. So she and her husband were considering bringing a lawsuit against this large state university. And I sat and listened for a while, and then she said, what do you think? I said, I've watched people go through lawsuits, and, and not near as complicated as this. And I said, that university has a truckload of lawyers. And my question is, what is it going to do to you and your husband? Because you, your motivation that you're telling me is we're going to make them pay. Pay for what they, the defaming of our son by his picture being in the newspaper. And I just said, you really got to think about what this is going to do, do to y'all and your own sanctification. Because it's going to consume your life. It will consume it for no telling how long. So, some of us never admit we're wrong. We were taught never admit we're wrong. We're unwilling to endure any kind of loss, especially it involves money. A pastor friend of mine, I heard him tell about a man from a former church he pastored in St. Louis. And he saw him one day, and this man who had struggled with assurance of salvation said, I am feeling so sure that God is at work in my life. I, God has given me an assurance of salvation I've never had before, that I am a Christian. And my pastor friend said to his parishioner, Why do you feel that way? And the man said... Because another man, another professing Christian, has stolen a lot of money from me. And my pastor friend said, I've got a mental case on my hand. And then he went on and he said, no, let me explain what I mean. He said, I have always loved money. Money has been my idol. And before I was a Christian, if this had happened to me, if this person had taken advantage of me and defrauded me out of some money, I would have gone for blood. I would not have rested until he had been destroyed. I would have been consumed with anger. But you know what? You know what I feel right now? He said, my friend said, what? He said, I, I think this man's not a Christian, even though he says that he is. And I'm concerned about his soul. 
So I'm going to go to him, and I'm going to pursue him, and I'm going to confront him with the facts, but I am not going to take him to court and sue him because what if I got all that money back and he goes to hell? And he said, I'm convinced I'm a Christian because I've never thought this way before. That's the transformation that God had worked in his heart. He's not saying sweep it under the rug. Was he saying that, well, we should always just forgive and forget? No, he was going to pursue what was right. But he was doing so in a redemptive manner, not in anger, not in vengeance. He was going to pursue it with an attitude that was prepared to take a loss if it meant the salvation of that other man's soul. Well, look at verses 9 to 11 just quickly. I won't reread it again. You've got this whole list of uh, lifestyles, sins, and they are lifestyles. He's not talking about one event of these in verses 9 to 11, sexually immoral, idolaters, homosexuality, thieves, so forth. I know of a professional, knew of a professional gambler, and this man was converted as an adult. He had never gone to church, and so he becomes a Christian, and he decides he's going to go to church, but he felt very intimidated, like, what are they going to think about me? So he went to a large church on the West Coast. The pastor at that name was an author named Chuck Miller, who's since died. And he's, the man sits down. It's a large church. He sits down on a pew, and there are people around him. He's thinking, what am I doing here? These people are all up here, and I'm way down here. So the pastor gets up, and he's going to preach from this passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. And and he said, listen, I'm going to read this list, and if these words described your life before you were converted, I want you to stand up. Neither the sexually immoral stood up, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. And all these people were standing up, and that guy who'd been feeling like this looked up and started looking around and leaned back in his pew and said, now this is my kind of church. That's the way we ought to feel. This is my kind of church. I mean, we... He, it, it's not an exhaustive list. Paul could have gone on and on. Uh, and when he said, such were some of you, when we study that in detail, the implication is, such were all of you. You know, all of us fit there. And I realize we're in a politically charged time right now, and the temptation may be to focus on one word in that list, right? Homosexuality. But Paul includes it here. Note, he doesn't put it in a different category. He puts it in the same category as greed. What's greed? Wanting more. i got to have more. More of what? I don't know. Just more. Always more. He puts it in the category of being an idolater. That doesn't necessarily mean having a stone statue of some god or goddess in your house that you bow down to. It just means you put yourself first. You worship yourself. Your needs are prominent and preeminent over everything else. All in the same list, right there. So don't look at this list and feel self-righteous. That's not the intention, because we all fit in here somewhere, maybe in several places. But what's the good news? Some, some of the Bible, uh, study Bibles and so forth I, I looked at said that this, an exclamation of joy, such were some of you, such were some of you, but, but the power of Christ has transformed you. That's the power of the gospel. The proof of Christianity lays in changed lives. In changed lives, a transformation. How does this occur? 
the latter part of verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. We know that sanctification is a process. And if you're a believer here, you're involved in the process of sanctification that won't be finished until you die or Christ comes again, whichever happens first. But Paul speaks of it as being so certain that he talks about it like it's already been done. You were sanctified. We are being sanctified, but it's so certain once this work begins. He washes us, he cleanses from our guilt, we're made right with God, the imputed righteousness of Christ is given to us, we're declared innocent because of Christ's work, and we're forgiven, and then he begins this work of molding us into the image of Christ where we're enabled to die to sin and to live to righteousness. That's what the Lord's table's about. The Lord's table is for people listed in verses Nine or nine and ten. Those of us. We come. Why? Because we've made ourselves better? Because we turned over a new leaf? Because we try harder? No. Because of, in the name of the Lord Jesus, by the Spirit of God, we've been washed, justified, and sanctified. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel that we are made right with you because of your work and because of the work of Jesus. And we pray that you might help us as we have grievances, maybe some are involved in that right now, that you might use this to bring peace through mediation, through uh, talking or, or some way, and that you would help us rather than um, uh, to be more reflective e even in things we're involved in of a legal nature. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of preparation to come to the Lord's table is In Christ Alone. Let's stand and sing all the stanzas.